May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. In Parable 101 class, uh, they teach you to look for the absurd uh, in the parable in order to discern the truth that Jesus is trying to convey. Well, in, two, in today's parable, we get two for one. There are two equally absurd statements that are, that are happening here. Uh, the first absurdity tells us a little bit about the landowner, who we might presume is God. The second absurdity tells us something about these tenants, or these wicked tenants, as some say, who we might presume to be the religious leaders of the time. Now, before I move on, I want to uh, uh, add a few words of warning as it relates to understanding parables. Uh, first of all, a strict allegorical reading, a one-to-one -one reading, will get us in trouble. Uh, while allegory can help us begin to understand what's going on, it can't take us to the finish line. Uh, for example, a lot of people have used this lesson to strictly say that, these, that the, the vineyard was initially given to the Jews and then it was given to the Gentiles. Therefore, the Jews, therefore, it sort of created an anti-Jewish uh, sentiment that has been carried down from generation to generation. So this passage is less about the Jews versus the Gentiles and more about uh, the faithful versus the unfaithful. Okay. Um, back to the absurdities in today's lesson. The landowner sends slave after slave after slave to cadet collect the produce only to see the wicked tenants kill them again and again and again. We might presume the slaves are prophets. After seeing slave after slave get cut down, the landowner gets what he thinks is a great idea. He will send his son, the eventual heir to the vineyard, to collect the produce. The landowner foolishly says, they will respect my son. What kind of glasses is he wearing? Is he really that naive? Is he going to send his son to these wicked tenants? No one except the landowner is surprised when the tenants kill the son who we might presume to be Jesus. Not only is the logic of the landowner flawed, but so is the logic of these tenants. When they see the son coming, they also get a bright idea. They will kill the son so that they can get the inheritance themselves. What do they think they're doing? In what world can they commit murder and get the inheritance, right? There are a number of threads that we can start to draw from here, but I want to pull the threads that tell us something about the nature of God and the, and the nature of humanity. The, the actions of the landowner tell us something about the nature of God, whereas the, the actions of these tenants tell us something about the nature of humanity as a whole. Based on the actions of the landowner, we might presume that God is foolish. God is naive. We might presume that God puts too much faith in a people who've proved themselves to be wrong again and again. Does God not see this as a fool's errand? To save a people who keep on turning against him? Then again, what other choice does God have? We might also presume that ours is a God whose love for us extends beyond all logic and all understanding. You might even say that God's love for us is desperate. Uh, the, this past week, our, my son John, six years old, learned at his Bible study that God's love is incomprehensible. And when I asked John what that word meant, he said, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> to try and understand God in God's ways, in and of itself, 
is a foolish endeavor. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. God isn't the only one who gets to be foolish. Now, based on the actions of the tenants, we might conclude that humanity is self-centered and blind to their own sin. Why do we think we can get away with murder (laughs) and get rewarded for it, too? Why do we think we can eat our cake and have it, too? Do we think that we are so special that the rules don't apply to us? Do we not fear the consequences of our actions? Or do we think we are somehow immune to the judgment everyone else is subject to? As we unpack these implications, I want to take us to Romans 2. Paul writes, Do you imagine, whoever you are, that when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not realize that God's kindness, do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, to a change of heart? So much of God's salvation project hinges on our ability to recognize our blindness to our own sin, our own separation. God's salvation project depends heavily on our ability to recognize the distance between our ways and God's ways and how that's corrupting not only our lives but the world around us. Uh, Contrary to popular belief, God helps us see this gap not through his wrath and anger but through his kindness, through his goodness, through his mercy. God shows us the gap not to shame us into doing right but move us to return to him where our hearts are made right with his incomprehensible love. As I mentioned last week, one of the reasons that we have a hard time recognizing uh, the distance between us and God is because we tend to think that we have laid the palm line. In other words, we believe the world revolves around me, myself, and I. We believe our worldview, the way we look at the world, is normative. And we judge others and even ourselves based on our warped worldview. Jesus and his kingdom, however, reveal that our worldview is woefully off-center. When we read the Sermon on the Mount, when we see the miracles that he's performing, when we hear his, his parables, how can we not see that our world is woefully off-center to the kingdom of God, which is the true plumb line? He is the chief cornerstone. We humans, however, have little respect for boundaries. The Ten Commandments is Exhibit A. And we like to think that the boundaries were drawn for somebody else. After years of sending messengers to call us back to God, only to see us backslide, God goes all in. God saves the best for last. He gives up his only son. God is laid utterly bare before a people who don't know when to stop asking for more. Now this image that I'm trying to convey uh, might be captured in a popular children's book, The Giving Tree, by Shel Silverstein, who all's read it. All right. It's a great book. Uh, as you probably remember, it's, a, it's about a boy, a relationship between a boy and a tree over the years. In the beginning, the relationship is good and mutual. The boy swings from her branches and sits in her shade. They enjoy each other's company. But after the boy meets a girl, everything begins to change. Uh, he takes the tree's apples to the city so he can make money, sell them and make money. He cuts off the tree's branches so he can build a house. He cuts down the tree so he can make a boat. And the tree is happy, but not really. Finally, the boy comes back to the tree, and now the tree's only a stump, and the boy is an old man. 
The tree wants to offer the man shade and food and branches to swing from, but the tree can't do any of those things anymore. They've all been taken away. But the old man is too old for that stuff anyway. The old man says he just wants to sit down and rest. So the tree, straightening herself up as much as she can, tells the old man that he can sit on her stump. So the old man sits down and the tree is happy. God isn't as foolish as we think God is. God knows that sending his son into the vineyard isn't going to end well. God knows that we will take and take and take until we can take nothing else. And God will give and give and give until he has given all that he has. But this is where our eyes are opened. At the intersection of God's infinite desire to give and our insatiable appetite to get. Nothing less than the crucifixion of his son will open our eyes to a world that has gone blind. At the foot of the cross, our desire for more, for more power, for more money, for more recognition, is revealed as weak and pedantic. At the foot of the cross, we also see a God whose love for us is incomprehensible, is more than we can possibly desire or imagine. On the cross, God is essentially saying, is this enough? What more do you need from me? I have given you all that I am and all that I have. What else is there? And from the foot of the cross, how can we not be moved to say, I don't need anything else. I've taken more than I deserve and then some. I am tired and bloated. This is enough. You are enough. Can I just rest with you? The gap or the chasm between God's ways and human ways is revealed as immense. The gap is so wide, in fact, how can we, how can we miss it? How can we not be moved to a change of heart? to turn around, to return to a God whose goodness, who, whose goodness and mercy, whose foolishness and desperation can make our hearts right and set us straight. In our little minds, it's absurd for another to go to such lengths to save someone who proves themselves to be tr untrustworthy again and again and again. But for God, it would be absurd not to go to such lengths. God desires nothing more than a relationship with his children that they might return to him and find rest for their wearied souls. God is willing to give all that he has and all that he is, that, that he, that all that he has and all that he is to draw us back to himself. And that's the good news. We don't have to commit murder to receive God's inheritance. It is given in his son, Jesus Christ, the one who makes a relationship with God possible. Now, how absurd are you willing to get so that the world may know a God who is more ready to give than we are to receive. Amen. And now we proclaim the faith of the church with the Nicene Creed. We believe